0: Good morning. This is Ben
2: and Kelly broadcasting live from the Internet Law Center here in the heart of Silicon Beach in downtown Santa Monica. Um, welcome to our show. We have a great show for you today. And um, we're going to start with um, we have a renowned author, um, Kim Zetter, who's the author of the acclaimed book Countdown to Zero Day, Stuxnet and the Launch of the World's First Digital Weapon. And then in the second half hour, we're going to give you news updates on what's going on in the world, um, in the cyber world today. Um, But without much further ado, we're going to introduce you to Kim Zetter. She is the author, as I said, of Countdown to Zero Day. It's a very highly acclaimed book um, that actually has been described as reading like a spy thriller. And um, she's also a senior writer at Wired Magazine. Kim, are you with us?
3: I'm here. Thank you.
2: Thank you for joining us. And um, so the uh, the, f- the phrase "countdown to zero day." What exactly is zero day?
3: Uh, zero day refers to a vulnerability in software, a security vulnerability in software that is unknown to both the maker of the software and to antivirus companies. And because it's unknown, uh, it means that there's no patch available to close the hole. And no um, antivirus signatures available to detect malware that might be attacking it.
2: And, and so the book is about Stuxnet, which deals with, um, which was an attack on the, a cyber attack on the Iranian um, nuclear um, efforts. And you know, it's interesting, it's almost as if we're, we're talking about the law of unatomic consequences. You know, um, when we drop the atomic bomb, obviously we drop it and there's no residue. Uh, obviously, this is a great nuclear fall, fallout, but you can't build a bomb based on what's left. And although we have spent a great deal of effort trying to prevent other nations from developing that technology, which leads us to this very day, which is you know Stuxnet and the effort to try to um, stop Iran from developing nuclear weapons.
3: Yeah, there's a definite irony in all of this. And I, in the book, I quote um, one of the editors of the Bulletin for Atomic Scientists when she remarks on Stuxnet and the parallels with the um, the nuclear program, the U.S. nuclear program. And she writes that in both cases, uh, this involved a technology that was developed without forward thinking to um, assess what the what all of the consequences might be in introducing um, this technology. And she also writes that uh, it was uh, developed and unleashed without proper understanding about um, not only just the long-term consequences, but the um, the effects that such an attack might have. So in the case of a nuclear attack, uh, although the, the results of that can be devastating uh, geographically, um, they're kind of isolated. Right. Uh, the nuclear fallout um, disperses. Um, as the, the winds uh, flow. With a digital attack, as you point out, uh, it's different in that, one, um, all systems are connected and in one way or another. And so you don't fully understand the implications when you unleash a digital weapon, how far it might spread to other computers and what might be the collateral damage. Um, and since computers are connected around the world, communication systems, critical infrastructure systems, things like that, um, it can have unintended consequences. But another uh consequence, as you point out, is that when you unleash a conventional weapon or a nuclear weapon, um, you know, someone can't uh reconfigure that weapon to send it back to you. Whereas with a digital weapon, when you unleash malicious code like this, the victim and also anyone else who gets their hands on it can actually reverse engineer the code and uh, see a blueprint for creating an identical weapon uh, to send back to you.
2: That that is an interesting thing. And then, you know, I actually studied, um, you know, the early days of of the the nuclear age. And then I recall that in Los Alamos, when they were testing, doing the first test, um, there actually was a a theoretical possibility that it could, you know, explode the atmosphere. (laughs) You know, I mean, it wasn't. Very high, but you know, just having that possibility, and then you think of Oppenheimer's famous quote, you know, from the Bhagavad Gita, um, as why he watched this, you know, this his creation, you know, I am death, destroyer of worlds. And I'm wondering, you know, what was it like for those at at you know at inception? Um, Would Suxnet that? Uh,
3: my understanding is, with people that I've spoken with is that this was uh, fully embraced. Um, obviously, there are there are the fingerprints of lawyers all over this code uh, because it is a precision weapon, and it was designed to unleash its payload only on a very specific system at Iran. Mm-hmm. Um, that implies lawyers were heavily involved in this to make sure that there wouldn't be collateral damage. Um, so obviously, that there was some concern about that. But in terms of uh, you know, sort of the overall cheerleading. Um, that was quite high because this was designed to avoid an all-out war with Iran. This was viewed as um, a more uh, a presentable alternative, and it's, you know, it's actually saving lives on two fronts. One, if that you're avoiding an all-out war with Iran, then you're saving lives. But also, if you're able to then prevent Iran from getting a nuclear weapon, um, then you're you know, potentially saving lives as well.
2: And, and just put this in context, This it was believed this may have been introduced in 2007. Was that about right?
3: Well, uh, Bush's advisors would have proposed it to him in 2006, but the planning for this would have occurred long before then. Um, and then the first uh, version of Stuxnet was released, uh, we believe there's, there's evidence of it being in the wild um, in late
2: 2007. Okay, so this is, you know... Um, First term, early, early to mid second term, Bush administration. When the, and there actually were people in in, in the administration and the more hawkish side who actually were, you know, beating the war, you know, beating the drums for war with Iran.
3: Yes, Bush was actually in conflict with some of his advisors, um, primarily, you know, Vice President Dick Cheney, who was uh, for. Um, you know, bombing Iran and in, the, in the ways that Iraq had been bombed, in the ways that Syria had been bombed. And um, so, you know, he was actually looking for, Bush was looking for an alternative to counter um, that drum beating that was going on in his own administration. So this actually presented him with the perfect alternative.
2: And, um, and you've actually reported since the book has come out that Iran um, seems to have learned some lessons from Stuxnet.
3: Yeah, so that was based on actually the NSA's own assessment. This is coming from an internal document that was uh, leaked by Edward Snowden. And in that document, they discuss um, that uh, Iran was learning not just from the Stuxnet attack, but there was another attack uh, against the Iranian systems after Stuxnet, this involved malware that um, struck computers belonging to Iran's oil industry and oil ministry, and it erased data uh, from those systems. And um, the report talks about how the Iran, Iranians have learned from these attacks, and, and then it points the finger at Iran for conducting subsequent attacks of their own that are similar to those. Not, not similar to Stuxnet, but similar to the attack that struck the oil ministry. Um, so, uh, so yeah. I mean, it, it goes to the point that I was saying about you know when you're unleashing a digital weapon and an attack like this, your victims do learn. They don't just learn from your methods and techniques. They learn from the code itself, and they can design a similar weapon.
2: Exactly. Now, um, we haven't really spelled out what exactly Stuxnet was and what it did. Can you kind of walk us through how how it would have been unleashed?
3: Yeah, so uh, Stuxnet was uh, targeting systems that weren't connected to the Internet. So they couldn't be attacked remotely in the standard way that hackers uh, can reach out over the Internet and attack your system. So what they did was they used a a zero-day exploit uh, that um, allowed Stuxnet to be carried on a USB flash drive. And so it would spread this way. And, um, you know, the attackers knew that the way that the systems in Iran are programmed are via USB stick. So what happens is these are, like I said, these are systems that aren't connected to the internet. The programmers in Iran will write code for them on a separate machine, load it to um, the commands to a USB stick, and then carry them down to the systems at this facility called Natanz, um, where Iran was enriching uranium. And so what the code did was it would infect uh, the systems that were controlling centrifuges at the plant that were enriching uranium. And the code was designed to do two things because there were two versions of the payload. One version was designed to open and close certain valves on the centrifuges, and the other was designed to um, speed up and slow down the spinning centrifuges. So the centrifuges are um, these spinning devices, aluminum devices, that uh, you uh, you pour uh, uranium hexafluoride gas into them. And the centrifuges, there's a rotor inside that is spinning at supersonic speed, and that uh, centrifugal force separates isotopes in the uranium hexafluoride gas and separates out the isotopes that you need for nuclear reaction from ones that you don't need. And so what Stuxnet did when it closed the valves is it would allow uranium hexafluoride gas to pour into certain uh, centrifuges, but it would close the closing valves so that the gas couldn't get out. And so as the result was that the gas would continue to pour into the centrifuges, And the pressure inside the centrifuges would increase, and that would have two effects. It would deteriorate the centrifuges themselves um, and possibly cause them to crash. But as the pressure of the gas inside increased the centrifuges, the gas would begin to solidify. And so it had two effects then. It would destroy certain centrifuges, but it would also uh, eliminate some of the gas that Iran had. And Iran had a, a limited supply of uranium hexafluoride gas to enrich Uh, The other attack that sped up and slowed down the centrifuges would have had a similar effect. It would have caused the centrifuges to become imbalanced and possibly crash. Um, And then also, in that regard, it would have lost uh, some gas. Now,
2: um, I'm I'm not sure if it was in the book, or I know I've seen you quoted that uh, a very good cyber attack um, goes unnoticed. So do we know for sure whether Stuxnet was the first kind of cyber um, warfare attack
3: it's the first one discovered in the wild we don't okay. know and, and, and we have to be careful about the, the definition of cyber warfare because cyber warfare is bandied about um, by everyone and you know the attack on Sony has been called cyber warfare uh, the attack uh, the DDoS attacks against Estonia in nineteen two thousand and eight 2008 was right. called cyber warfare and uh, I, I think, for you know, for most experts and academics just um, studying this, I think you know we want to limit cyber warfare discussions to uh, something that is actually uh, in the physical realm. So something that is causing some kind of destruction in the same way that a conventional weapon would cause mm-hmm. destruction. And so this is the only example that we have in the wild um, of digital code actually being used to cause physical destruction.
2: And so, now that it's been discovered, and um, and it appears that Iran has learned something from this this attack, have you talked to any of the people who were involved in the early days, and whether they have any um, questions about whether this was a good thing or a bad thing in, in hindsight?
3: Involved in the early days of
2: what? The, of Stuxnet.
3: In, involved in developing it? Yeah. No, I haven't spoken with
2: that. So you're not aware of anyone who's saying, gee, I wonder if this was the right decision?
3: Um, I'm aware of people who are in those groups. Uh, So not necessarily, you you asked if I'd spoken with someone who actually developed the code. Right. Um, So, no, I wasn't, I I didn't speak with someone who developed the code. I've spoken with other people who um, were on programs around Stuxnet. And so, um, and, that, and that means supportive programs or whatever. I'm, I'm going to sort of leave that broad and wide. Um, but the 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 general view was that this was an ingenious attack, that it was well supported um, for the reasons that I mentioned earlier, that, you know, everyone viewed this as um, a good thing if it could uh, preempt uh, an all-out airstrike against Iran and therefore avoid war. So um, while there were, you know, there, there were a lot of um, there was a lot of careful planning, like I said, the lawyers getting involved to make sure that it wasn't causing collateral damage um, and there was a lot of, you know, sort of careful planning, um, it wasn't of the type of naysayers saying don't do this.
2: And, um, so going to the consequences, you know, there have been, you, you, you outlined that the risk is that we could be vulnerable to one of these attacks. In fact, you know, there have been certain attacks on, you know, infrastructure within the U.S. Um, that could or could not be related to this or, you know, similar methods. And um, can you walk us through you know, what, what is the concern there?
3: Well, so what Stuxnet did was it infected uh, what's called a programmable logic controller. And these uh, PLCs, um, the specific ones that Stuxnet attacked, are made by Siemens, the German conglomerate. And these, um, in order to do that, these PLCs are, are controlling the centrifuges and entons. But these same PLCs are used around the world, and they're used in pipelines, they're used in chemical plants, They're used uh, not just the ones by Siemens, but made by other companies as well. All of these, uh, they're called industrial control systems broadly, um, control a lot of critical infrastructure. They control traffic lights, they control elevators, they control um, commuter trains, uh, things like that. And these systems were never designed uh, for security in mind. They were designed in the late 90s. They first became sort of digitized. Um, previous, prior to that, there were analog systems, uh, for controlling, uh, critical infrastructure. And they, have uh, become increasingly, uh, connected to the Internet so that, um, managers can manage them remotely. And, uh, because they weren't designed with security in mind and because they're accessible over the Internet, that makes them a prime target for nation states to target or average hackers or even um, competitors if they wanted to sabotage uh, a competitor system. So these systems have been put on the Internet and made broadly available without proper forethought and planning uh, in order to secure them.
2: Um, but one thing that does have proper forethought is um, our producers are telling me it's time for a break, but we'll be right back with more on this uh, interesting topic on Stuxnet after these messages. You're listening to Cyber Law Business Report.
0: Do you want
1: to optimize and grow your business? Then master your skills in conversion rate optimization. Sign up for Conversion Conference Las Vegas 2015, happening on May 12th through the 14th. It's Brasco from Webmaster Radio inviting you to the biggest and only conversion conference in the United States this year. Join your colleagues and the world's leading conversion experts, including Tim Ash, Amy Africa, Lance Loveday, Natalie Nahai, plus 40 of your favorite optimizers. Learn to create persuasive content, design landing pages that trigger your visitors to action, and convert blog readers into companies. Customers. Come to Conversion Conference, the conference that pays for itself in no time. WebmasterRadio.fm listeners get a $100 discount on their pass. Register early and get full access for only $897 when you use discount code WMFM. Simply register online at ConversionConference.com with the code WMFM. That's ConversionConference.com, code WMFM. Hurry, save your seat before they sell out.
3: When you started your business, you first listened to your professors.
1: So light the afterburners to the domain name aftermarket and fly over to Namejet.com at mock speed to get great domains today. Namejet.com.
0: The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report, only on WebmasterRadio.fm.
2: Some of the reviews that have been written about it. Um, the Economist calls it an authoritative account of Stuxnet spread and discovery, delivers a sobering message about the vulnerability of the systems, train lines, water treatment plants, electricity grids that make modern life possible. Um, Wall Street Journal called it exhaustively researched. Zetter gives a full account of this hack of the century as the operation has been called, but the book goes well beyond its subject to offer a hair-raising introduction to the age of cyber warfare. Um, so, Kim, um, we now, at the time you started this book, did we have a Cyber Command?
3: Yeah, the Cyber Command was uh, created officially in 2010. Um, but unofficially, I mean, there, there had been a cyber command, uh, prior to that. I sort of go into the history in the book of U.S. cyber warfare planning. Um, and it, it began in its initial stages in the late 90s, um, and then really got into full force around 2004, 2005. Around the time, um, that General Keith Alexander took over the NSA, he became, uh, dual leader of the NSA and the U.S. cyber command. Um, and that was the point where many people say that it really kicked into high gear.
2: And, and so as we move beyond um, Stuxnet and we, we evaluate our own um, vulnerabilities, um, how, how do you think we are doing today? I know, for example, a former national security advisor, Clark, um, well, advisor to the National Security Council, um, had a book that at one point he suggested we were far behind in the cyber race. Um, but has recently said we're making great strides. Um, do you have a view on that?
3: You're talking about Richard Clark's book, Cyber Warfare. Yes, exactly. Yeah, there was a lot of problems with that book. Um, it was it was primarily a, a book designed to make people very fearful. Um, and I think that um, you know there are a lot of problems with the systems. Uh, I think that there's been a lot of effort in the last few years, um, and because Obama's administration has made cybersecurity a priority. There's been a lot more focus on cybersecurity and, and issues around it. I think that there's still been a lot of resistance by companies and by critical infrastructure owners to actually secure systems. I think, uh, ironically, the Sony hack has kind of woken people up to uh, some of the dangers and uh, in ways that they haven't been in the past of people just telling them they need to secure their systems. So I think that there is, um, there are a lot of vulnerabilities and I think that our critical infrastructure is in the sites of enemies who, who will go after them and are looking for vulnerabilities in them. Um, but I think that um, I, I don't see a cyber Armageddon on the horizon in, it, in the way that Clark and others do.
2: Right. And a very evocative term. Now, you've been on record of saying that you don't believe or you think that the, the evidence isn't necessarily compelling that North Korea was behind the Sony attack.
3: Yeah, so by that I mean that the evidence that the government is offering for its attribution is not uh, solid evidence, and it's possible that they may have other evidence that they're not sharing. That's the implication that they're making, that they somehow have secret uh, NSA evidence, but at least the evidence that they've presented publicly um, and that they're using to back their attribution is not solid evidence.
2: Now, in the um, in the case of Stuxnet, it was a, a, the United States was working closely with the Israeli intelligence authorities. Uh, do you know whether that that is a, a practice in in terms of other um, cyber initiatives that we have?
3: I think that uh, you know the Edward Snowden leaks have shown uh, great cooperation between, uh, for example, Britain's GCHQ spy agency and then NSA. Um, I think if you're going to look at uh, the biggest partners the U.S. has, it would be the five eyes and not Israel. I think the partnership with Israel over the Iranian program was because of a mutual interest there right. and because Israel has uh, intelligence that the U.S. doesn't have in the Middle East. Um, so that was very specific to that. But in terms of overall surveillance uh, for counterterrorism and things like that, it's really the five eyes, you know, GC, uh, the U.K., Canada. Um, I forget who Australia. <laughs> I forget who all the five eyes five are, but those are really the strong partners. And I think out of all of those, uh, Britain's spy agency is the biggest partner.
2: And um, in terms of the assessment of the damage done by Stuxnet, you've you've heard various things that it delayed it six months, two years. Do you have a sense of you know, really what you think is the, the most likely?
3: Yeah, I cover that in the book because after Stuxnet was discovered, there was the former head of the Mossad, Israel's intelligence agency, who said that it had set Iran's program back about three years. And Hillary Clinton had uh, made some comments. She wasn't referring specifically to Stuxnet, but about overall efforts to thwart Iran's nuclear program, she also assessed that uh, the program had been set back about three years. But as I pointed out in the book, uh, Iran's nuclear program, at least the uranium enrichment program, did suffer some setbacks as a result of Stuxnet, but within about a year, Iran was back on track and it was producing about the level of enriched uranium that they were expected to produce. Now the program didn't advance any during that time, it should have advanced, so it it was held back. Um, but not uh, substantially. However, I do want to point out that there are some who say that Iran would not have come to the table for the negotiations that it's currently engaged in um, without the knowledge that uh, Stuxnet brought that the U.S. could attack it anywhere. Um, so there are many that say that e- even though Stuxnet might not have set back the Iranian program uh, to the extent that it could have if it was never discovered, um it was uh, it was a sign to iran that authorities could get at the program uh and so um it, it may have convinced them that and, and i want to say in combination probably with the assassination of nuclear scientists in iran um might have been uh something that convinced iran to be willing to come to the negotiating table
2: and and also yeah i can imagine you know iran they, they've set their facility up in, in nance which I, I believe is supposed to be you know it this kind of impenetrable fortress, and um you know unable to you know, reach by by air you know air attack and um, and so Stuxnet would have shown them that there actually is a vulnerability that they hadn't thought about
3: right so i, I, I so the Natanz facility is uh protected by uh, anti aircraft uh, guns um and as I pointed out, the systems are air gapped from the internet. So, the Iranians did certain things that they needed to do in order to protect that facility. They also built the uh, uranium enrichment halls uh, twenty five to fifty feet under the ground to um, pro- to protect them from an air strike. Um, but the, the digital attack of Stuxnet showed that even those protections wouldn't uh, prevent digital code uh, from reaching a system like that.
2: Now, one thing you, you always hear—worst case scenarios here in the United States—and the one thing you frequently hear is, "Well, hackers could um, open up Hoover Dam," and which you know, a lot of, I've heard other U.S. officials say that's ludicrous because it's not even hooked up to the internet.
3: Um, yeah, so so I think that you know we have to be careful in reading stories, or oftentimes there's not a distinction made between uh, theoretical possibilities of of what kinds of systems are controlled by industrial control systems. Um, and what systems are actually capable of being attacked. So when I said that industrial control systems don't have security in mind, that is a fact. Um, but whether or not every system that's controlled by industrial system is uh, vulnerable to attack is not the same thing. So for instance, our nuclear uh, facilities here in the US, um, nuclear plants, there have been some cases where worms or viruses have gotten onto systems um, and they've brought down uh, a nuclear plant or they've brought down the safety system of a nuclear plant. But these plants also ha- um, have manual overrides. And so the, in some cases, there are a lot of um, uh, dual protections in place um, that would either mitigate attack or prevent them. And so it's even though industrial control systems are vulnerable, not all systems are equally uh, in, in practice vulnerable.
2: We well, only have a few minutes left, but... Um what What is it that keeps you up at night on this issue?
3: Um, I don't know that uh, any of that keeps me up at night. Uh, I think that the government surveillance activities are probably <laughs> a little more concerning. Um, the but... fact that they're
2: under your bed.
1: <laughs>
3: <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, you know, I've been covering cybersecurity since 1999. And, and for me, a lot of this feels like, uh, you know, it's not news for me. Um, I think the nation-state hacking um, and, of course, Stuxnet obviously just takes us into a new realm, and it is new. Um, and I think that we're going to see more of this. I think that it doesn't keep me up at night, but I think de- definitely we're not prepared for what we're going to be seeing in the next few years.
2: All right, so the book is Countdown to Zero Days, Stuxnet, and the Launch of the World's First Digital Weapons, available on Amazon. We have a full write-up on it. On our blog, um, cyberlawradio.wordpress.com, you can see more information about the book, some of the reviews, and about Kim. Kim, if people want to find out more about you or the book, where should they go?
3: Um, well, I write for Wired, and um, I, they could also follow me on Twitter. So it, it's uh, Kim Zetter um, on Twitter.
2: Great. Well, thank you very much for joining us. It's a very important book. I encourage people to check it out, and uh, I want to thank you, and we'll be definitely following you on Wired.
3: All right. Thanks very much. Appreciate thank it. Thank
2: you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. So we have – it's interesting, the whole concept. You think a few years, all these people who have been going to shrink saying they were paranoid, knowing to find out that the NSA really was (laughs) following them. And uh, But um, so I want to thank Kim for joining us. And so um, in our second half, we're going to be going over some of the news updates that are going on um, in the Internet today. And we've had some significant ones. Um, one obviously that has um, where Kim is up in Silicon in San Francisco in Silicon Valley, gripped is the the um, Klein Perkins trial. Um, they had closing arguments with um, um, earlier this week, and so this case will then get be sent to a jury later this week, and we'll see how long deliberations take. Um, but while all this has been happening, um, f- more. Um, gender suits have been filed. Um, the lawyer handling representing um, Ellen Powell has um, has actually filed a suit on behalf of a woman against Facebook also alleged, alleging gender discrimination and now um, there's a class action against Twitter um, in which it um, an, another gender discrimination has been, been alleged um, and one of the allegations of the complaint is that quote. The company's promotion system creates a glass ceiling for women that cannot be explained or justified by any reasonable business purpose because Twitter has no meaningful promotion process for these jobs, no published promotion criteria, nor any internal hiring advancement or application processes for employees. Um, So we'll be watching that closely as well as the jury comes out. But it it seems that as this climate develops in Silicon Valley and the um the great concern that this is not a hospitable climate for women um you know it has consequences. I mean, people just said that's just the way it is. Boys will be boys, you know we 're dealing with engineers, you know they don't um quite socialize well well um it yeah, that doesn't cut it and and I think that's what we're seeing that um there has to be greater sensitivity. Um, to the companies on this these type of issues, and you know as you 're seen here, regardless of the merits of the, any of these cases um, you know they're they're paying a price for that in having to defend these lawsuits and possibly in, and ultimately being liable in some cases so um, definitely we'll be following that as we go along the um, troubling development involving the uh, Bankruptcy of Shack and um, Radio Shack, in both its stores and in its privacy policies said quite clearly, we will not sell or rent your personally identifiable information to anyone at any time. Um, Brasco, I don't know about you, but does that sound ambiguous? I think it's quite clear, um, but unfortunately, um, they're actually in the process of, they're in bankruptcy right now, and um, they're trying to auction off its customer database of 117 million customers and um, so there's somewhat of a a backlash against that but it's unclear how that will be um, what ultimately will happen Um, I think they have not ruled on the objections um, filed by a couple of states uh, on behalf of their consumers and so it's quite troubling, and it's it's actually you know from a practitioner point of view it's also um you know they may have made that decision that that's what they wanted to do, and since they've made that decision, um they should adhere to it, but it's also quite common in most um privacy policies I've seen have some exception in the case of bankruptcy you know um saying that except you know, we will only transfer your data to certain limited people to assist us in performing services to you. In addition, uh, in the event of a merger, for example, it's important that your privacy policy address that. And often privacy policies will also address um, what happens in the event of bankruptcy. Um, RadioShack made a choice not to, and consumers relied on that choice, and, and they should you know, shouldn't um, be penalized here. You know, that was the choice RadioShack made. I mean, you have to understand that you know, obviously that is an asset in bankruptcy. It's an asset that has value in bankruptcy. But that's the choice Radio Shack made with its consumers. So um, we'll be curious to see how that plays out. Um, other news going on in the, in the Internet world is um, the FTC went after um, this important ruling in terms of um, – whether or not an advertiser is liable for the actions of their affiliates. And um, in this case involves uh, Lee Click Media um, and its uh, affiliate network. And um, the, uh, the FTC said that um, they were responsible for the acts of their affiliates. And when the affiliates were actually um, promoting products on fake news sites... And we have talked about this a little bit, um, and uh, in this case, the advertisers were Lean Spa, NutriSwim, and um, selling weight loss and, and colon cleansing products, and uh, um, by promoting it through the Leclerc affiliate network, um, using fake news sites to build credibility. Um, we 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 talked earlier about the FTC's you know, use of endorsement guidelines and and um, false. Um, endorsements and false marketing claims, and that's basically what this is coming back to. And uh, the FTC in the state of Connecticut went after them um, and said that this was deceptive marketing practice. And in um, and and the FTC prevailed in federal court. And the, so the important point here is that you do have a duty to monitor the affiliate networks you use, and um, and so it also means that. Especially companies that often sometimes I've talked with companies and they want to go as close as they can to the line in terms of pushing the envelope from a marketing perspective but always staying on the, you know, the, the line of uh, what is right. And the problem is, is the closer you get to the line, um, the more you are relying um, on the perfect execution of everyone else on the other end of the chain and that includes your affiliate marketers. And here, clearly, um, <laughs> that you know that that put them over the line, and so uh, monitoring your affiliate marketers is an important part of advertising compliance. Um, another news update of note is that there's a, a new crackdown, a renewed, I should say, a, a renewed crackdown on click fraud in uh, online advertising, and um, what's happening there is that. Um, Advertisers. Uh, a recent study found that as much as 11 percent of traffic, which advertisers were paying for, um, was were bots. And um, you know, Brasco, correct me if I'm wrong. And I don't know if I've I've, uh, I've never heard of a bot um, buying anything. <laughs> and I think that's advertisers have reached that conclusion as well. And um, so they are now actually through their um, association have ad- adopted new contract terms that require um, proof that humans have, are the ones who watched the ads, who clicked on the ads. And um, you know the, the effort um, will have some consequences. And, for example, um, there's an article in Reuters that discusses this and um, makes points to um, a company here in, in Southern California um, that's well-known. Um, OpenX, and they've actually already have, and they're a publicly listed company. They've already um, tried to attack this issue, and uh, um, they took a fifteen percent hit in revenue growth in two thousand thirteen after um, investing heavily, quote, to clean up traffic. And uh, but now, but the next year growth was back on track. And um, but they spend up to a million dollars a year um, to ensure the traffic quality. So. um, that's going to be an issue that we're going to be pursuing. Um, we may talk to our old friend, Mike Zanis, to get his view on this. But um, we're going to have further um, news updates. Um, but first, we're going to take our final station break. And you're listening to um, Cyber Law and Business Report, only on Webmaster webmasterradio.fm.
0: Stay tuned for more of the Cyber Law and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors.
1: Hill. Contact Orange Hill for a consultation today at OrangeHillDevelopment.com. bruceclay.com. Introducing Rumble, the smart mobile management system, the first end to end mobile platform where you can make real time app modifications from a point and click dashboard. Want to change the design of your app? Point click and it's live in real time. Want to change the ad map of your app? Point click and it's live in real time. Want to change the content mix of your app? Point click and it's live in real time. Power, your mobile business with Rumble. Are you ready to rumble? Visit www.rumble.me.
0: The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report, only on webmasterradio.fm.
2: Please check out our website at internetlawcenter.net. And notes on the show um, and background on both the news updates and on our featured guest or on our blog at cyberlawradio.wordpress.com. Also, you can follow us on Twitter at CyberlawRadio. So, um, before we go into further news updates, a couple of shout-outs. Today is Maryland Day. It's actually a holiday in Maryland. And or as many people there say, Merlin. And um, so I wanted to commemorate that today was... On um, March 25th, 1634, I'm sure all of us remember that day, um, The uh, it was the landing of the first European settlers in the province of Maryland, the third English colony to be settled in British North America. Um, and for those of you who have never been to Maryland, it's actually a quite beautiful state. Um, I shouldn't be touting it since um, they lost in the unstable It's totally killed my bracket. But any event, uh, it really is a beautiful state. Baltimore is just a vibrant and fun city. Um, the, you know, harbor there is kind of a, a landmark of urban re- redevelopment and, um, you know, and they, with their ballparks there, you know, you know the Orioles' um, home of Camden yards is legendary. Um, out to the eastern shore area, beautiful beaches in Annapolis, um, one of the sailing hubs of the, you know, the Atlantic. Um, I'll actually be going there for a wedding this fall. It's just a beautiful old colonial town. I actually got sworn into the bar there Um and signed the book that you know dates back to the seventeen hundreds um, once you're admitted and it was a really nice um, historic moment um, it's also where the naval academy is and uh... so it's um... And then if you go west you have the kind of the beautiful mountains and that's where camp david is um, although no one will tell you where it is but it's up, up in the, um, the cacaton mountains by cunningham falls and uh... another beautiful area so um Give a shout out to the great state of Maryland. Happy Maryland Day! i um, damn you for blowing our <laughs> bracket. But um, in connection with Maryland Day, though, we have been we're continuing our tour of the University of Maryland um, Law School faculty. Um, next week, we actually will be having another member um, of the faculty, and uh, we have a uh, uh, professor um, Rena Steinzor, uh, who actually has a very interesting book that's causing quite a bit of discussion and it's called why not jail industrial catastrophes corporate malfeasance and government inaction? you know so the next time we have a BP or a Bopal or even you know some of the financial malfeasance we've seen on Wall Street in the 2008 era um you know why not send the corporation to jail that's a, it's an interesting concept um something that we'll be happy to explore next week but um and we previously um had um, another professor and we're trying to get Daniel Citron as well um, who has her book on um, cyber cyber harassment on the internet so um, they've always been, it's a very good school they're doing a lot of interesting things so we're glad to have them on. So jumping away from Maryland Day um, back into the news um, one other development that's of a note is that um, we talked a little bit about the FCC's decision on um, net neutrality and earlier in that day they actually reversed they um, decided to preempt and affirmatively um, preempt um, state laws addressing uh, there was about 20 states that actually enacted laws restricting the ability of municipalities to offer um, broadband services and um, it was largely you know, an effort by the cable companies and um, telecoms to uh, basically restrict competition and ironically, that one of the kind of cities petitioning the FCC to, um, to make this move was the city of Chattanooga, which we've talked about on our show a few times. Um, there, the municipality, you know, through the help of a stimulus grant, um, actually laid down um, a new broadband track at the same time as doing a smart grid and has now emerged as um, the fastest internet city in the country. Um offering gigabyte gigabit speed um both up and downloading. and um, as a result, you know Chattanooga, which isn't quite what you would think of as Silicon Valley, has actually seen um, a lot of attention from VCS from um, the technology hubs and is actually having events um, you know, exploring how this great technology can be used. and um so, Ironically enough, Tennessee was one of those states that restricted further expansion of broadband, and a neighboring community wanted to, to sign up and be part of the Chattanooga success story. Um, and so they petitioned the FCC, and the FCC went ahead and, and said, yes, um, you know, our mission here is to promote, you know, we have a federal mandate to promote the expansion of broadband. And so they granted the petition, and so now the Tennessee um, the, the state of Tennessee is actually appealing the FCC's order and saying, "No, no, no! Please don't give us high-speed internet." And um, so it'd be interesting. That's the first challenge that's been filed to that um, move. In addition, um, several um, there have been several parties that have filed associations and um, that have filed a challenge to um, the net neutrality regulations, but. Um, and we saw this happen last time, the last uh, internet um, net neutrality rules that came out a few years ago, Um, it's actually, the litigation is actually premature because um, the net neutrality regulations, even though they've been released, um, do not become effective until so many days after they've been published in the Federal Register, which is this kind of publication of all um, federal notices, and, um, and that has not occurred yet. So, um, but it shows that Verizon and uh, Comcast don't want to have their name tagged with being the, the, the people that killed um, net neutrality. But, it, you know, so clearly they're going to do it through an association. And, but so that probably, they'll probably update or refile the suit after um, the, the regulations are formally published in the Federal Register. Um, so that's going to be coming any time, any day now, or I'm not quite sure of the date, but it will be soon. Um, another development, and we've talked a little bit about Yelp, and Yelp has been quite controversial. There's some some people who claim, and uh, even internal Yelp people, who have confirmed that um, Yelp has basically said, listen, if you don't advertise with us, um, it's going, to be, it's going to cost you. To put, you will have com- Your competitor's ads will be more prominent. We'll have them on your page and more or less some, some level of it, extortion. Although um, in federal court, they said that you know, that wasn't extortion because it didn't quite fit the legal definition. Uh, Yelp wasn't necessarily doing anything. It wasn't um, allowed to do anyway. Um, it just may not have been the right thing to do, but it was certainly not the illegal thing to do. Well, um, that's that issue seemed to have died down with that opinion, but now actually a filmmaker is taking that um, taking that issue and going on Kickstarter with a, a documentary uh, called the um, the Billion Dollar Bully, and uh, there's a, actually a trailer for. Um, the documentary on the blog and encourage you to check it out, but they're raising money for Yelp. And so um, that's certainly not good news for um, for Yelp. And so you may want to check that out, check it out on Kickstarter. Um, interesting issue and uh, see how this develops. Brasco, what's up? Yes,
1: yeah, so I did want to bring a story, which I, I didn't know if you had already brought up yesterday, but our SEO Rockstar show brought this up. And it's the plan that the FTC is creating a new office to examine the Internet of Things, big data and other emerging technologies. And I know on the show, you've actually brought it up numerous times about Internet of Things. So I want to make a point of that. They made the point, the story I just sent you the link right now, um, and the idea is that's going to be coming into play. That's, that's been announced. It, and, it is a big
2: issue um, for them. And, yes, that is, is going to be um, something that's going to be watched carefully. Um, in addition um, the f t c has publicly announced actually that they are seeking technologists um and likely for this very purpose and uh so it, you know, if anyone you know I, if you, that this is something that you, fits your bill, I definitely encourage you to think about it because you know the f t c is a is is a fairly respected arm of the government, and uh, they've been often said. Um, they've done a great job at um, taking a, a very simple mandate to deal with unfair, deceptive practices in interstate commerce and have evolved as t- with technology. And so, um, yeah, I think um, you know, big data is <clears throat> going to continue to be a big issue. I know the FTC chairwoman Ramirez is concerned about big data. And I think the FTC, over the last few years, and is really trying to get their arms around how best to address this, and what should consumers' rights be, and how should they articulate them. And um, I, I don't know if they come up with a formulation. I know they're somewhat disappointed by how has responded um, with their privacy bill. I think it falls a little bit short, but um, I think we're going to see a lot uh, on this issue as, as this goes on. I wouldn't be surprised to see another FTC forum. On this, and then you often from forums come some proposal. Um, we've had several forms so far with with how anything really fully um, metastasized and developed into a, a, a formal legislative proposal. But I think at some point we're going to get there. And uh, so, um, yeah, definitely the Internet of Things is a huge um, issue. And you know, and to the extent that, one consumers are even aware this data is being collected, how it's being used, what it's being combined with
1: um and and then not, oh, we lost Bennett for a moment. uh we'll get him back on so shortly, but uh, what I was gonna jump in and say before he we, we lost Lawson for a second was that we're gonna go ahead and plan to go okay. ahead and um uh, do a blog post wait. to go ahead and discuss the Internet of Things, we want to go ahead and do something a little bit comprehensive for everybody out there, so that's available for everybody to go and listen to, or actually go and read and follow back up on. The plan will be, we'll discuss the story, and then we'll put, you know, really go back and look at all the links of uh, Cyberlaw Business Report that has discussed this, so that everybody can get a chance to get a bit of the back story leading up to what's happened.
2: Sure, we'll definitely do that.
1: And, I'll be um, doing that. Uh, we'll have that made available the next day or so on the Webmaster Radio blog.
2: Great. Yeah, And... um so I, I think um, that's going to continue to be an issue. The other issue that's going to be it's been a major issue it has been the health related hacks, and um, you know, those are high value, very valuable data because um, think of the information that's in health information. Um, it's stuff that's easily um, used for identity theft because you have date of birth, you have um, some character- physical characteristics. There's a lot of information there. And so there's great concern that that the growing um, trend in that area and uh, whether or not something needs to be done to step in to address that um, remains to be seen. Um, But that's something we're going to be covering as well in the future. Um, But I think it just shows that um, the scope of this data is being collected, the Internet of Things and um, and sharing of information um, how m- many more access points there are to that data. So we only have a few minutes left, and I do have um, one very important shout-out um, and a brief one. One is um, there's going to be a conference podcast San Diego, and um, that will be all-day conferences Saturday in San Diego. I, I hope to attend. I can't guarantee I'll be there, but if you're going to be there and um, definitely try to see if I'm there, I'm happy to talk to you. Um, another, I, I have to, um, being from Rhode Island, a very big hockey state, where um, which for years has been dominated by one French-Canadian in the high school that where they actually recruit the kids from Quebec um, and, and it actually sent more um, kids to the pros than most football, any football program in the country. Um, and so um, somehow we've been able to get around um, that team in my high school, LaSalle Academy, has actually won the state championship for the first time in 38 years. So I want to congratulate um, everyone there on Academy Avenue um, and uh, great going, guys. Um, so, but that's all we have this week. Um, again, I want to thank our guest, um, Kim Zetter, and um, join us next week. We'll be talking about a very interesting topic and uh, on why not jail? So this is Ben and Kelly signing off from the Internet Law Center here in sunny California. Um, See you next week. Court is adjourned. All the
1: best. The opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of WebmasterRadio.fm's management or sponsors. Any rebroadcast or redistribution without authorized consent of WebmasterRadio.fm is prohibited.
0: Save big on brunch for mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each, then get flavorful Tyson natural boneless chicken breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon.